We just had a grant of a billion dollars to the people coming across the border illegally that are now being housed in America instead of housed in, in Mexico. Here's what's, what's stunning. They used to survive off of 12, per, 12 dollars per person per month is, is how much we, we help mm. them with their, their ability to survive. Now it's down to eight dollars per month per person. Okay. The contract was a non-bid process, which is supposed to be illegal, but since it's a grant, they got around it. They subcontracted out to an organization that's housing people at $900 per day per person. Wow. Where could you and I stay for $900 a day? Yeah. That'd be a pretty nice vacation, yeah. right? Yeah. So somebody's getting a cot in a, in a mosquito netting or, or, or a tent and, and a, some meal on a tray for $900 per day. Somebody else is becoming a billionaire over this, right? We have something wrong with the way we're spending in America, and that's just based on a grant. That's not even a competitive bid process. Yeah. We have a significant problem the way we're approaching government. We need to redo everything. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Hey, welcome to another edition of American Potential. We're, of course, down in Atlanta, and I think we've recorded probably seven or eight podcasts from uh, Eric Erickson's The Gathering here in Atlanta, and it's been great. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. I'm getting a little, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'll just be honest with you, but uh, not before we do one more great interview. And today's guest is a husband, a father of seven. He's a decorated veteran and an emergency room physician. And he was raised by a single mom. He worked his way through college, earning a degree from Oregon State University. Now, because he believes in service before self, he not only served in one branch of the military, but two. While serving in the Marines, he became a helicopter pilot. And in the Navy, he was the department head for the emergency medicine department in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Between deployments, He earned his Master of Business Administration from National University and a medical degree from Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. He now proudly serves as Georgia's 6th District U.S. Congressman and serves on the House Armed Services Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, and the Science, Space, and Technology Committees, as well as the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. We want to welcome Congressman Rich McCormick to the podcast live here from Atlanta. All right. Well, Congressman McCormick, thanks for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing great. Great to be here. Good. Well, listen, first of all, you're, I almost said former Marine, but once a Marine, always a Marine, right? That's right. um, But I hear, I understand you were in the U.S. Marine Corps commercial. (laughs) Is that right? Uh, yeah, back You're, in the early 90s, I was chosen out of uh, my the basic school class. Uh-huh. Uh, they came and interviewed about 100 of us. I think I was uh, the company commander uh, or XO picked out a bunch of us to go audition, and I was chosen to go to Hollywood and make a commercial, uh, the knight in shining armor on the chessboard commercial back in the early 90s. I played until about the mid-90s. And you were the guy with the sword. I was, the one Is doing the right? sword manual. Man, the that's pretty cool. I, You kind of look the part, I got to say. <laughs> so there you go. Um but you have an interesting background. Tell folks about your background. I mean, you were in, in the Marine Corps, but a specialty in the Marine Corps, so, right? So I spent about 16 years in the Marine Corps. I was originally going to enlist in the Army, ironically. 17 years old, signed the dotted line to go enlisted at Airborne. And, uh, and then I saw this movie. 
uh, it's a documentary. I don't know if you heard of it. It's called Top Gun. And uh, <laughs> it changed my life. I was like, wow, wow, how do you do that? And they said, well, you got to go to college. I only put in my application to one college. I didn't plan on going to college. My mom was a single parent, secretary, didn't care about academics, didn't care about sports. She's just trying to make it the next day, but always had that very positive outlook. And uh, I had her withdraw her parental consent to go in the Army just so I could go to college, which I'd <laughs> only put in for one college as an extra credit assignment for social studies. And I'm going to school, graduating, going to um, uh, aviation, became a helicopter pilot for about 16 years, did some airborne tour in between that. I uh, ended up, I was supposed to go to JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command in Fort Bragg, Right after 9-11, perfect job, but everybody there uh, was going through a divorce. And one of the guys I knew that was on the rugby team that I played with said, and he, who's now a two-star general, uh, said, you're going to love it. You're going to work with SEAL teams, Delta Force. It's going to be the greatest job in the world, but your wife's going to hate it. You're going to be gone nine months out of a year, uh, so get her prepped. And I was like, well, I've been gone two and a half years out of my marriage already. Uh, we have a nine-month-old. We have one on the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't seem like the right thing to do, so I thought about it, prayed about it. Boom, I, I'm supposed to be an ER doc. I don't know anything about being an ER doc. I don't know about uh, what you do to become that. Didn't know what pre-med was, but uh, it all worked out perfectly. I was not supposed to get that billet, but uh, as, as chance would have it, I had an MBA, and my MBA helped me get the job right here at Georgia Tech and Morehouse and was able to complete my uh, degree, go uh, from the Marine Corps into the Navy as an ER doc, and that's how I finished up my 16 years, so a couple tours in Persian Gulf, uh, tour, a couple tours in Korea and North Africa, and uh, India, and then my last tour was in Afghanistan in 2016, retired in 2017, and as they say, the rest is history. Now, what's worse combat? Some of those places you've been or, or the house floor? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would say that, you know, nobody likes war, but at least when you go to war, you know you got good Marines on your side. Uh, in Washington, D.C., if you want a friend, get a dog, as they say. Uh, actually, I, that's maybe a little overstated. I, I'm, I'm fortunate. I feel like... Um, because of my, my character and who I am, I, I'm going to make friends quickly. And I feel yeah. like I've been able to work with pretty much everybody without vilifying anybody. Uh, very conservative voter in, in Congress, if you've been paying attention, probably one of the top 30 most conservative voters. But at the same time, I don't vilify people. And, and it's been a good experience just to learn and, and, uh, and find some fellow warriors to, yeah. to get some things passed. I like to ask this question, too, because I, I worked on Capitol Hill. And back then, I think... It was more common for Democrats and Republicans to talk on the floor and things like that. But have you found some friends that are I Democrats have. and you talk with them about even other things besides politics? I have. You know, it's it's the nice thing about doing things like I go to the gym in the morning. I'm in a bipartisan workout group. Uh, I made some friends that way and then just reaching out. It's, it's funny. One of the, the guys who who's kind of taken a shining to me is uh, uh actually is the son of Jesse Jackson. Now, his brother's in jail. Oh, okay. was a former congressman. Uh-huh. This guy is, uh, Jonathan Jackson is, is I consider a friend. He's, I, I prayed with him on, on, on people whose children have cancer. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we have just a very, he calls me his HBCU brother because he went to a minority university uh-huh. also. Yeah. And, uh, and so I have people I can lean on in relationships um, uh, that I know if I have a bill that, that has some attractiveness to both parties, the key is to find something before you bring it to the floor so that you have some bipartisanship already built in. Mm-hmm. Because if you wait, they're going to vilify you just because you're a Republican. Like, mm-hmm. for, for example, healthcare. We know we spend the biggest portion of any money spent in the American government spent on healthcare. 26% now. It used to be 20%. Wow. Growing quickly uh, between Medicaid and Medicare. 
Uh, it is the single biggest consumption of American tax dollars. It's also one of the biggest consumptions of private dollars. Um, if you look at the money we spend just in the government alone, it's $2.5 trillion. Think about that. That's the same size as, as roughly the Indian GDP. Wow. From the most populous nation in the world. It's growing faster than any other spending item also. So if I want to come in and pass something to, to find a way to, to solve that fast-growing um, consumer of tax dollars. And I said, look, we have a growth of administrative costs by 25%, which I thought was egregious to begin with, all the way up to 40%. If I wanted to cut that back down to 25%, which means we'd eliminate 15% of the spending on the budget just for healthcare alone, immediately the Democrats would say, Rich McCormick wants to cut 15% out of spending on old people and poor people. Right. Because they just don't, they, they want us to lose. They don't yeah. want it to be an idea... They don't have that same adage. It's, am it's amazing what can get done when you don't care who takes credit for it. Yeah. So by using that bipartisanship on ways that we can actually get something done, if you can win a few Democrats over and, and talk to the committee chairman who you're, who you're working with, it's amazing. We've only had one um, amendment so far defeated that I've, I've put in, and I think our bill is going to get passed too uh, just based on having friends. And, yeah. and by the way, some of the loudest speakers in the Republican Party don't get anything passed they, get, they, lay, they raise a lot of funds. They get reelected every time, but they don't get anything passed because they don't have any friends. Right. If you want to start the conversation with something to get done, to actually accomplish something to change America into the future, start with a friendship because you'll, you'll actually have some effectiveness. You seem, I'm guessing this, but it sounds like you also uh, use faith to connect to people. It sounds 100%. like 100%. Is that right? Absolutely. Have you found other people from both political parties and that share your faith. 100%. And, and more than that, too, leaning on God to give me the wisdom to know what to do. And, and, and that's far beyond the relationship. Just knowing, having the spirit of love, because, you know, the good book says, you know, be prepared to give an answer for what you believe in, you know, for the joy that you have, if you will. And, and if you do that, if you have a positive demeanor, people will be attracted to you. This is a human nature, yeah, you know. Sure. It goes far even beyond faith. Just people want to be around people they feel good about. They want, to, they want a positive effect. If you're constantly, and this goes back to the presidential election, if you want to grow the party, if you want to affect change in America, who do you think has done that in recent, in our lifetime, more better than any other president? It was Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan mentioned God in his speeches more than any other president in, in history, period, contemporary or otherwise. He was always positive, always painted the picture. Even if he was going against you, he would use humor to belittle you, and you wouldn't even know it. You'd be laughing on you. Like, Wait a minute, he was talking about me <laughs> because he was so clever at it. He sure. was never nasty. He was always a a positive influence, and I I try to model myself after that idea that you're going to be much more effective when you have a positive message, even when you're going against somebody. That I'm not vilifying you because nobody wants to be wrong. Yeah, I'm having a loving discussion about what's right. Yeah, it has nothing to do with what you believe. It has to do with what's right, and if I can make it about the people. Mm -hmm then we can get a lot more done rather than making it about me and me being right and me, me, me. Um, I always tell kids when I was in youth ministry, if, if you want to truly be happy, serve others. Because when you're self-serving, it's about how good looking you are, how much money you make, how much power you have. You'll never have that happiness. We've seen plenty of people who have all the power and fame in the world commit suicide. Why? Because they find out it's not about me. Mm -hmm. And when they find out it's about me, they don't know where to go from there. Yeah. But if you're truly invested in others, you'll have more friends and more support and more laughter than anybody else in this world because people want to be around you constantly. And yeah. I think the same thing in politics. When it's not about you, it's about what's right. 
You can have any conversation you want to have. You just have to remember not to be righteous, self-righteous when you're, when you're trying to be right. Yeah. You have to have a loving conversation. Yeah. You mentioned Ronald Reagan, who built a strong friendship with the Democrat Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, and through that got tax reform done through a Congress that was controlled by Democrats. Absolutely. And, and Reagan was a great communicator, right? Yeah. You think about his, his, his resume wasn't that impressive. He's an actor. Uh, <laughs> then he became governor of California, but he always had a consistent message, even before he was even governor, about painting a picture about what America is and what it can be. Uh, he was always visionary instead of reactionary. He was always positive. He was always engaging. He was always trying to grow the party in a way that was sustainable, not just attract people to show up on Christmas and uh, as a minister, you know, mm-hmm. on Christmas and Easter. Yeah. He was trying to grow the church. And I think if we're going to attract people from the minority population, from the youth, from the soccer moms, from immigrants who come here legally. If you want to do that, you have to have a different conversation than sometimes we're having inside the Republican Party, which sometimes gets, quite frankly, nasty. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to appeal to all people because the American dream is for all people. Yeah. We have people coming from all over the world that are natural conservatives that sometimes with our rhetoric we turn off because it's not inclusive. And when I say inclusive, I'm not talking about compromising our morals, right? but saying you are part of what's good about America, not bad. And and that if you want to have a conservative block grow and spread your ideology in good ways, start with a message of love and make sure you have a friend. And then once you have a friend, you can talk about anything. You'll have far more influence than trying to win an argument. Win a friend instead of an argument. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I want to talk about a little bit about defense versus non-defense spending. You yeah. know, d- uh, defense spending has stayed pretty consistent from through the Cold War, uh, to the percentage of GDP that it is, but we've really seen this growth in entitlements and non-defense discretionary spending. You talked about health care. I mean, obviously, it's beyond critical. It's beyond a uh, crisis mm-hmm. point in Washington, D.C. How do we get control of that? Well, first of all, there's no way to have a significant conversation about budget and deficit without addressing the automatic spending. Now, we can call it non-discretionary, you can call it automatic. Do not call it uh, what a lot of people have. Uh, they, they keep on saying that it's, it's, need, it's needed spending or it's, um, what's the word that we always use on the non-discretionary spending? Uh, mandatory. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. It's not mandatory. We're right. Congress. We control that. Right. And, and so the idea is to get away from this idea that this, this percentage of the budget that's automatic and growing rapidly, uh, that we can't tackle it because America won't put up with it. Right now, it consumes 71% of the budget. It's an all-time high. And by the way, next year, it'll be higher. Sure. So the 29% of the budget that's left over, if you consider that you're, you're right, the percentage of the budget that goes to the military isn't going to change because right now we have all kinds of issues with Russia and China and bad people in Iran and North Korea. If we don't address our military, we'll lose our influence and our power to, to really guide foreign policy. Uh, so that's not going to go away. So what we're left with, and this is what we, we debated over the, the cap lift uh, for the deficit, mm-hmm. was 11% of the budget. That's what you're left with. And we took it as a major victory. They were able to shave off a small portion of that 11% of the budget left over so essentially, what is Congress even needed for if, if, if you're talking about 11% of the budget is what we're debating over? That's what's left over mm-hmm. when we get past the automatic spending and the military. Uh, the 11% of the budget. What happens when we're down to 9%, which is going to be in my life in the, in the very near future, actually, sure. at the way it's, it's happening. So when we're arguing over 9% of the budget, which is single digits, 
Right. Is Congress even relevant anymore? Right. Because if you got rid of all that entire 9% we argue over, we'd still be doing deficit spending. Right. We'd still not have solved the world's problems. Why don't you make that 9% discretionary too? I mean, non-discretionary and then just walk away and take a two-year vacation every time you're elected because that's where we're headed right now. Yeah. Uh, when we spend all our time debating 11% of the budget and soon to be 10% and then 9%, what are we doing? Yeah. Uh, and so we need to have some really consequential cocks. And, and one of the things I've suggested to leadership, and you heard it here first, uh, although it's not the first time it's been mentioned inside the House, uh, is we need to have a committee for hum- health and human services. And why is that? Because, well, first of all, it's the biggest spending item, the fastest growing spending mm-hmm. item. And every state that I know of, unless you know something different than I do, has a committee on health and human services. Yeah. We have a secretary of health and human services. It's a department, yet we don't have a committee for it. We have four subcommittees, one in energy and commerce, one in ways and means, one in education, one in VA. When it's a subcommittee, you don't become an expert in that. Mm-hmm. It becomes your staff is split between that and other things. Think about the complexities of a $2.5 trillion industry just with government spending. Then add another $2 trillion onto that with, with, uh, with our private spending. Mm-hmm. And then you, you'll start to understand the immensity of pharmaceuticals, PBMs, insurance companies, GPOs, hospital systems, not to mention all the healthcare professionals, all in one glut of, of spending we do every year. And, and by the way, doctors aren't the problem. We had a, a pay cut of Coach, uh, coaching on 3% last year, while inflation was 8%. So we had really le- less than 10% of our, uh, about 10% of our discretionary spending went away because we as doctors become less empowered. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, insurance companies made eight record straight quarters of profits. Mm-hmm. There's something out of balance in healthcare because your premium, I'm sure, went up in the last 10 years. Yeah. Probably significantly. Sure. The Affordable Care Act has done nothing that's made healthcare more affordable. It's empowered the big boys more than anything, and it's going to put itself out of business. So we need a committee dedicated to this. We need to have talks about all of our non-discretionary spending and have real consequential talks about Social Security, uh, uh, about healthcare, and about everything else that seems to be automatic and say, where can we do better? And I'll give you another example, our grant process. I just came back from Bangladesh and India. In Bangladesh, you have Cox uh, Bazaar, which is a place where the Rohingyans had the largest refugee camp in the world. Almost a million people. 52% of those are children. They have a growth of 30,000 per year of just births. Uh, Less than 2% of them are over the age of 60. So it's going to be a problem forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have no real solution in in hand. Well, that's one issue, but here's what's what's stunning. They used to survive off of $12 per per person per month is is how much we we help Mm. them with their, their ability to survive. Do that calculation. That's that now it's down to eight dollars per day. By the way, hmm. per, sorry, eight dollars per month per person. Okay, that's less than a hundred dollars spent per year on a person. Mm-hmm. We just had a grant of a billion dollars to the people coming across the border illegally, that are now being housed in America instead of housed in, in Mexico. The contract was a non bid process, which is supposed to be illegal, but since it's a grant, they got around it. They subcontracted out to an organization that's housing people at $900 per day per person. Wow. Where could you and I stay for $900 a day? Yeah. That'd be a pretty nice vacation, yeah. right? Yeah. So somebody's getting a cot in a, in a mosquito netting or, or, or a tent and, and a, some meal on a tray for $900 per day. Somebody else is becoming a billionaire over this, right? Yeah. Because that's what's happening. $900 per day versus $8 per month. Yeah. 
We have something wrong with the way we're spending in America. And that's just based on a grant. That's not even a competitive bidding process. Yeah. We have a significant problem the way we're approaching government. We need to redo everything. Yeah. Wow. That's that's staggering. Um, And so true. Um, I've got so many questions I want to talk to you about, but uh, I know we've got limited time. How about energy policy? I want to talk a little bit about energy policy with you and, and, and where we are. It seems like this administration and the policies of this administration are pushing us just to take away choices and options for Americans and decide for them what kind of car they're going to drive, what the fuel efficiency of that car is going to be, those sorts of things. Um, That has a consequence of driving the cost up. And and we're seeing that in the price of energy, right? It's not just price. It's not helping with the pollution issue. Right. Uh, Ironically, if you look at all the nations that were in the Paris Climate Accords, there's one nation who really fulfilled its mission and it's not part of the, well, it wasn't part of the Paris Accords, and that's, that's the United States. Sure. Uh, we've made the most improvements significantly towards, and you can say, well, that's because of our policy. Yeah, but that was before we required everybody to go to an EV car. Mm-hmm. The vast proponent, um, uh, producer of renewable energy sources is China. Now, ironically, they're the worst polluter in the whole world. Mm-hmm. Right. The more we empower them to take over the energy sector, the worse we're going to do for pollution, and the more expensive it's going to be for the United States. So we're literally footing the bill for clean energy while we're polluting the world. How does that make any sense? So if you really want to save the world, don't put all the eggs in the China basket where they're strip mining places for lithium, where they're using child labor and slave labor, and they're warping the market with fiat currency, meanwhile destroying the economy and the World Trade Organization and, and really doing bad things for America, which is one of the good guys in the energy industry, by mm-hmm. the way. Right. We have natural gas, for example, which people vilify all the time. It's the only source of energy that has a negative carbon impact. You're collecting methane out of garbage sites and, and cow farms to produce energy that otherwise would go over into the, the ozone depletion. And so it's a negative carbon input, but yet we vilify that industry. We're talking about... Um, oil industry and, and making sure people don't offshore from America, we're the only ones who do it cleanly and safely, and you empower other nations to do the same thing, you're going to come up with more pollution. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you produce solar panels and, and things like that in, in China, and the way they do it, it produces way more pollution. Uh, the way that China does renewable energy with lithium and everything else like that produces tons of pollution and tons of uh, child labor issues and everything else like that. Like I said, we have to approach this from an idea that we're the good guys. The Biden administration and so many Democrats act like the United States is evil, mm-hmm. that we're wrong, that we don't do things right. We have to trust in the people of the United States to do the right things. That doesn't mean taking away our ability to make choices. As a matter of fact, I say we empower the American people. They will make the right choices because we are good people at yeah. heart. Yeah. And, and these choices that are being made by politicians in Washington, D.C., they have the worst effect on, on the people who can least afford it, Right a single mom or, or, right. or, or a family that's struggling somewhere. Those are the people that are really paying the price for higher energy costs, for gas prices that are skyrocketing. I mean, how, how do we, uh, it seems like they've forgotten that that's who they, who they serve. As a matter of fact, not just, no, actually I don't think they've forgotten. What they think is they know best. Mm-hmm. This is what's dangerous about any socialist slash communist slash Marxist government is when they start thinking, I know better than the people. We are unique. Yeah. The way the government in America was formed is unique amongst all governments. There's a great book by Federer called Who's King in America that talks about all the governments that ever existed in the world. We're the only government that started 
with the idea that people should be more powerful than government mm-hmm. and that people will make the right decisions. And, and whenever the government starts to say, I know better than you about your children's education and the education system, whenever the government says, I know better than you about choice in energy, or I know better than you whether you should own a gun or anything else, I get very worried. Yeah. And that's what the Democrats have drifted towards is that the government's all powerful. It replaces God as the moral standard of whether you should be transgender or not. The government knows if it's moral. The government knows, right? Not a physician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, right. it's not a psychosomatic disorder. It's a, it's a moral consequence uh, decision. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we really, so you're taking away the medical professionals from deciding what's good for your 12-year-old, by the way. In California, they just passed a law that says your 12-year-old can make a decision whether you can see their medical records or not on lots of different situations, which, by the way, a black liberal from California just called me on this, who was a classmate from mine from Morehouse, and she's like outraged about it. I'm like, welcome to the Republican Party. Uh, <laughs> now it's time to get engaged as yeah. a political activist. And, yeah. and this is the nice thing is we are in a perfect position right now to take back the reins of government and to disempower ourselves. I was just recently on a talk show host, uh, a liberal talk show host show, and she said, what is your goal of being in, in, Repub- in, in Republican in Congress anyway? I said, well, make sure that government's not too powerful. Because right now the federal government is way too powerful. She said, wait a minute. You're telling me you went up to D.C. to become less powerful? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and she, she went cross-eyed on me. She just couldn't understand that concept because so many people go up there with the idea that they're going to lord over people. They know what's best for them. I'm just the opposite. I believe that we are the one place in the world that leads the way in empowering people. And the further we get away from that, the worse off we are, including energy policy, including education, yeah. including rights to arms or whatever it is. We need to remember that I trust the person, the individual, the mind, the ultimate minority more than I trust the government 10 times out of 10. Yeah. And people will make different choices and that's okay. That's right. right? Yeah. That's, that's, our, that's what we talk about on this podcast a lot is uh, government barriers, barriers that the government puts up in front of people, whether it's this, you know, the state licensing board that decides, you know, that you got to have 2000 hours worth of school to cut hair or, you know, whether it's in the inflation that's caused by rampant government spending and bad policies. So we've got to remove those government barriers so that individuals can make those decisions. When you get laws, this happened in Roswell recently, where an hour, a mile and a half section of road required by regulation. This is in Georgia. We're a Republican state, right? Yeah. That you require a $700,000 study that takes a year and a half to find out if you can repave a road that has potholes. How are we servicing Americans? Yeah. You're literally costing them a three quarters of a million dollars more. You're delaying it by 18 months just to make sure that you can do what you know you're going to do anyways yeah. to fix something that's already a problem. That, yeah. that is insane. That's government yeah. to a T. A lot of people get that money, by the way. That money's spread all over the place and lobbyists just lick their chops. They're salivating over right. it. But we're not servicing the real purpose of government. And I think the more we have transparency and, and open the books so people can see what's wrong with our government, the better off we're going to be and the more people we're going to convince to come over to this conservative idea that we know. Right. We know what's good, and that is empowering people. Congressman, I feel a lot better knowing that you're in Washington, D.C. I really do. Thank you very much. So, no, I appreciate you joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank Th- you. Thanks Thank you for a lot. all that you're doing. You bet. Thank you. Appreciate it. Semper Fi. Well, I really do feel better knowing that there are people like Congressman McCormick in Washington, D.C. What a great guest, uh, f- full of energy, full of thought, uh, you know, Great to hear him talk about, you know, reaching out across the aisle, having friends that, uh, that, that, that are Democrats that he shares his faith with. I'm, I'm happy 
about that. I'm, I'm excited to see that he's working across the aisle without compromising his convictions. And that's really what we should expect of all of our members of Congress and all elected officials is to, to have their convictions and stand on principle, but also to work with anyone to do good. And that's hopefully what most members of Congress are doing. But very excited. I know we're going to hopefully we'll have Congressman McCormick back again. Uh, that was just really a great interview, and I really enjoyed having it. Thanks for listening to American Potential. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.